Welcome to the Strangers on the Way podcast, where daily interaction with a stranger can transform your life. We hope today's episode inspires you to meet your own Strangers on the Way. Welcome to day 25 of our 40 days of Strangers on the Way. Today's story is um, very, very personal to me. One of um, really my life's missions has come out of this story, and uh, I'm honored to share it with you today. So today's story is about Richard, beauty from ashes, living the abundant life. The thief comes to steal and kill and destroy. I have come so that they may have life and have it to the full. John 10 verse 10. This story isn't about a stranger. Rather, it's about someone I've known my entire life. His name is Richard. Richard started his life with what seemed like something out of a magazine. He belonged to a wealthy family. His dad, a lawyer trained at Harvard, his mom, a social debutante. They lived in a 22-room house with a maid. Abundant food stocked the shelves of the family's large kitchen, and even as a young boy, lavish vacations took Richard all over the world. But inside his home was another story. His dad, perhaps with a mind too brilliant and pain too deep, fell into an addiction with alcohol. Richard often found himself in the middle of his dad's drunk rages while his mom hid away in her room. When Richard was 22 years old, his dad died. The very drink his dad thought would bring him life brought him death instead. As a young adult, Richard quickly became the man of the house, responsible for four of his younger siblings, while his mom wasted away in a depression that nearly took her life too. Richard eventually grew up and began a family of his own, but the past continued to haunt him. Determined to avoid the substance that killed his dad, Richard never drank, but his dad's legacy of rage continued in him. Sometimes Richard would be overcome with anger and silently sought to control the environment around him. His wife and children didn't like the conflict, so they tried their best to cater to Richard's needs, but they still never knew when an episode of anger would surface. One day, Richard suddenly fell and was taken to a hospital. After a few scans, he learned that he had a tumor the size of a grapefruit in his brain. He and his family rallied and Richard had a successful surgery. But to his dismay, the tumor came back, not just once, but four times in the following seven years. By the time the fifth tumor surfaced, Richard and his wife had divorced. His anger was just too much. Richard's anger distanced him from his kids as well, and it looked like he would faith face this fifth tumor alone. Richard had no one. He found himself in the middle of a cold, wintry February day and decided to call his kids to ask for help. He hadn't talked to them in months, but to his surprise, they came to his aid. On the day of the surgery, his kids joined him at the hospital and waited. This surgery was a bit different than the others, though. Richard suffered a stroke during the procedure, leaving his left side nearly paralyzed. Instead of recovering at home, Richard was transferred to a rehabilitation facility to strengthen his body first. It was there that the atmosphere shifted. His kids decided to stay with him and as the weeks progressed, Richard's angry demeanor began to soften. Richard would cry as his daughter sang songs over him and hope would fill the room. It was a turning point in their relationship. After a few weeks, Richard was transferred to a new rehabilitation place closer to his home. And after a month, he was released to go home. He learned new ways to walk, to shower, to do basic tasks, and began a new way of living. 
His kids went back to their jobs and life went back to normal. After a weekend of not hearing from his dad though, Richard's son went to check on him. They had become quite close after the two months in the hospital, so it was odd not to hear from his dad. When he arrived, his son found Richard dead. He had taken his life. Richard was my dad. In the biggest tragedy of my young life, I quickly learned what it was like to lose someone to suicide. My world shattered in less than a second. As I heard the news, I fell to the floor. This can't be real, this can't be real, this can't be real. The year that followed was a blur. I grieved and I wrestled and I got angry and sad. I imagined what his last moments were like. I tried to understand why. I wondered if I could have stopped it. A few sentences in a book cannot describe the extent of the gut-wrenching loss, but I don't wanna focus on the pain. Instead, I would like to share what I learned in case it may help someone else someday. Number one, you can't learn your way out of pain. You have to walk through it. The first year after losing my dad was a blur and in the second year, I decided I'd figure out why the suicide happened. I tried to crack the code as if there was one. I read dozens of books about grief and suicide. I went to counseling. I watched mental health webinars. I asked God thousands of questions. I researched spiritual warfare. I studied my dad's life and, and his history. Somehow I thought understanding the reason my dad died would help alleviate the pain. What I came to find is that you can't logic your way through pain. You just have to feel it. When every wave of grief came, I finally learned to let myself cry and brought all of the messy emotions to God. David in Psalm 23 says we walk through the valley of the shadow of death, and I believe that he understood it best. We literally walk through it. We face it. We look at it as ugly and devastating as it is. We feel it and we go through. Number two, it is often darkest before the dawn. I'm convinced that if my dad waited 20 more minutes, he would have had the strength to continue living. Studies show that when people make the decision to attempt suicide, nearly half will attempt it within 20 minutes. This statistic wrecked me to the core. 20 minutes. 20 minutes is less time than one episode of a favorite Netflix show. On a smaller scale, this reminds me of moments I have crummy days and I feel like life is ruined, only to wake up the next day with a more positive outlook. I've noticed the greatest breakthroughs happen right after it looks like all hope is lost. That is the perfect canvas for God to come in and rescue us. If you are battling today, my invitation for you is to hold on. Hold on just a little bit longer because your rescuer is on the way. Number three, suicide is not the problem. Hopelessness is the problem. I've come to believe that the root cause of suicide is hopelessness. Suicide is the behavior, but hopelessness is the deeper struggle. The action of suicide is rooted in the belief that life will never get better, that things will never change, that we are unworthy of living, that the best days are behind us. These are all lies. In John 10, 10, Jesus says, the thief comes to steal and kill and destroy. I have come so that they may have life and have it to the full. The enemy goes around planting lies like seeds and seeing if any will take root. He knows that if they do, destruction is close behind. My dad ended up believing a lie that resulted in the action of him taking his life. I do not fault him for this, and I do not fault anyone for taking their life. Hopelessness killed him, though, and because of that, for the rest of my life, 
I am committed to helping people find hope. I am committed to helping people find the abundant life that Jesus bought for us. Number four, vulnerability is the key to freedom. According to the National Institute of Mental Health, those who choose to take their own lives are often experiencing excruciating sadness and isolation and may have difficulty expressing that vulnerability. The evening my dad took his life, he called me on the phone. We didn't talk about anything noteworthy except for my work week, and then we hung up and I went to a festival. As I've replayed those moments on the phone, I desperately wish my dad would have told me how he was really feeling. I believe it could have changed the outcome. When I feel stressed, sometimes I call my mom and I ask her to talk me off the ledge. We've joked about that phrase, but I realize now how insensitive it sounds. By the time I finish expressing my feelings to her, I already start to feel better. I believe my dad didn't have the skills to know how to do that, but it starts with a simple risk and an honest word. How are you really doing? How are you really feeling? Who are you going to tell? A mentor of mine says that our identity is not defined by our behavior and our behavior does not define our identity. Who we are is not dependent on what we do or don't do. I do not define my dad by his anger or his last action on earth, but instead I choose to remember his brilliant mind and silly jokes. I choose to remember the light and joy he brought into our family. I choose to remember the deep hunger and desire he had to experience Jesus's love. If my dad were here today, I think he'd tell you a really lame joke, and then he'd tell you that you are wildly, wildly loved. I think he'd tell you what horse to bet on at the racetrack, and that hope is an even better bet. And I think he'd start dancing really badly and tell you with a gleam in his eye that the best is yet to come. Let's wonder, is there anyone in your life in need of hope? Is there anyone in your life in need of hope? Let's activate. Ask God how to partner with him to help your loved one find hope this week. Are you losing hope? Who will you reach out to for help today? Risk being vulnerable with someone safe. I promise it will be worth it. Ask God how to partner with him to help your loved one find hope this week. Or if you're losing hope, who will you reach out for help today? And then let's yield. I invite you to pray this prayer with me today. God, I come out of agreement with hopelessness today. I declare that you are the God of hope and you live inside of me. Fill me with your presence again. Drench me in your love. In Jesus' name, amen.